Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Glad you're joining me for this Tuesday afternoon. We are going to take some time today to think about the term cafeteria Catholics. Now, this was used, has been used, to describe self-identified Catholics who kind of pick and choose which church teachings they're going to adhere to. Um... Often in the past, it's a derogatory phrase that's been used by theologically conservative Catholics over against more theologically liberal Catholics. So, for instance, uh, people who disregard, uh, Joe Biden, who disregards the church's teaching on abortion, for instance, and the definition of marriage. Uh, We call him a cafeteria Catholic. I don't mind that. I think that's okay. Okay. but you can do it. You can flip it as well. So, for instance, my guest, Dr. Richard DeClue, is going to point out that there's also church teachings that more conservative, theologically conservative Catholics also ignore. We're going to go over those uh, particular teachings. Coming up, I'll have some words to say about outrage, indignation, fear. I'll start out by talking of the war in Gaza right now and how so many people are outraged by the civilian, the numbers of civilians killed in proportion to the number of Hamas killed. Okay. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought about what would be the right number? I mean, what what would be the proper balance here? Should you be able, is it moral to kill three civilians for every one Hamas fighter? Ten? Two? We're going to take a look at this. We have a celebrated, we have the opinion of a celebrated uh, military historian to go look at. Also coming up in the second hour, Dr. Marianne Glendon, uh, what she saw as the ambassador to the Vatican she was a Vatican rep to uh, the Beijing Conference on Women. She served as a U.S. ambassador to the Vatican when Benedict XVI was Pope, and then was named by Pope Francis as a member of the Pontifical Commission of Inquiry into the Vatican Bank. She has seen it, and she's a laywoman. We'll find out what her eyes saw. Right now, though, let's get to the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Tuesday, February 20th, it's the Feast of Saints Jacinta and Francisco Mardo. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. President Biden says new sanctions against Russia are coming this week. I told you we'd be announcing sanctions on Russia. We'll have a major package announced on Friday. White House National Security spokesman John Kirby telling reporters the sanctions are aimed at holding Russia accountable for Alexis Navalny's death and for actions over the course of the war in Ukraine. 
President Biden says there's, quote, no doubt that Russian President Vladimir Putin was responsible for Navalny's death. California Representative Sarah Jacobs says the U.S. must stop Israel's attacks in Gaza or civilians will be decimated. Lucinda Kay reports. California Representative Jacobs is the youngest Jewish member of Congress. In a statement, she says a ground invasion of Rafah would be catastrophic. She says Rafah is now the only place left for 1.5 million displaced Palestinians to take refuge. Jacobs is calling on the U.S. to use all its leverage to influence Prime Minister Netanyahu to immediately change course and work toward a diplomatic solution. She wants it to include the release of all hostages, a permanent ceasefire, and a two-state solution. A suspect in Colorado's latest school shooting is headed to court today. Police arrested Nicholas Jordan three miles from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. The 25-year-old from Detroit is a student there and accused of opening fire inside a dorm Friday, killing two people. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is not dropping out of the race for the White House. Haley is delivering remarks in Greenville, South Carolina, on the state of the race between her and former President Trump. The speech comes just days before the former South Carolina governor is set to go head-to-head with Trump in her home state's GOP primary. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Richard DeClue, is professor of theology at the Word on Fire Institute. He specializes in systematic theology with an interest in the thought of Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, he's also interested in the ecclesiology of Henri de Lubac, uh, the debate over nature and grace, and developing a rapprochement between communio theology, or resourcement theology, and Thomism. He has a book, The Mind of Pope Benedict XVI, which we're looking forward to seeing in this spring. And Dr. DeClue, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You, uh, this piece that you wrote, uh, Word on Fire, about converting conservatives, the importance of moral consistency caught my attention. And uh, let's go over the, the phrase cafeteria Catholics. What's that mean? Basically, it refers to people who like to pick and choose which doctrines of the church to accept or not based on their personal preferences or private opinions. Okay. And that's free, that's been a frequent complaint of conservatives towards theological progressives or theological liberals. Is that right? Traditionally, yes. Yeah. But the table can be turned. Tell me how. Well, there's... In some instances, I've seen um, conservative, both politically and religiously, Catholics who have themselves been resistant to certain teachings of the Church, especially when it comes to Catholic social teaching. Mm -hmm. And in one instance, I I recall right before Pope Benedict XVI's social social encyclical came out that I knew some conservative Catholics that were complaining that he was even writing an encyclical on that topic because they felt it was inappropriate for the Pope to enter into the political and economic realm. Yeah. Uh, but it's not unusual uh, for Popes. The history of Catholic social encyclicals is usually kicked off with Rerum Novarum, uh, Leo Thirteenth, and that certainly dealt with um, economic and political issues. Yes, absolutely. There's a long-standing trajectory within 
um, the Catholic magisterium going back to the 19th century. And, uh, you know, I, there's also the famous moment in American conservative political history when uh, National Review, under the editorship of Bill Buckley, took issue with uh, uh, John, Pope John XXIII's social teaching as well. What's the resistance? Why the resistance? Well, I think in some cases it has to do with um, parallel developing education where people sort of learn their catechism on the one hand and then they develop their socioeconomic and political views separately from secular sources. Yeah, okay. And that creates a tension and people tend to think that they, oh, well, the Catholic faith just must be compatible with my socioeconomic political views um, that they've already developed independently of the church, and then they find it difficult to try to reevaluate those in light of magisterial teaching if they've already had that developed thought. So they've adopted, they've adopted uh, social attitudes and even uh, political and economic doctrines that uh, don't originate in church teaching but are really a result of human observation, human experimentation, and human, um, uh, you know, uh, human analysis. Uh, give, me, give me an example, a, a common example uh, that you see among political conservatives. Well, I think amongst political conservatives, there can be a tendency of giving too much credence to the idea that the, the free market will always lead to the most just results. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, there's a lot of benefit to the to capitalism. Yeah. It's shown a tremendous ability to get people out of poverty on a wide scale, never before seen in human history. So there's certainly real value there. But the idea that market forces themselves are sufficient to guarantee justice in society when it comes to economics is just, you know, completely unfounded. It's completely possible for either labor or um, capital to oppress the other and to be unjust towards the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this has been constant teaching of the magisterium, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you use the example uh, here, uh, watching a, a YouTube video of Michael Knowles' speech at Young America's Foundation event held at Clemson University, where he addresses the question of who's to blame for the evils of surrogacy. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I was I was pleasantly surprised to see his talk, where he was talking about how um, there's a rise in same-sex couples starting to seek um, IVF and surrogacy as means of acquiring children, uh, which he refers to as the, you know, commoditization of children, and I think rightly so. He's pointing that out. But then he, he notes that there are actually some people who consider themselves to be conservative who are somehow applauding it mm-hmm. or are only against it if it's a same-sex couple that's asking for it, but are okay with it if it's a heterosex couple asking for it. And he's trying to point out that this really isn't morally consistent, that in either case, um, IVF and surrogacy are themselves intrinsically immoral. Yeah. Um, This is a... 
I, I assume, just judging by your own education and background, that you've actually engaged uh, quite a few conservatives over the years on this kind of problem. Is, am I right? Um, hit and miss. I mean, <laughs> okay. my area is more in systematic theology than um, Catholic social teaching. But yes, I've engaged in it uh, yeah. every now and again. How successfully? Um, I mean, I think it's mixed results. Um, usually when I've taught Catholic social teaching in the past, I've, I've received pushback from both sides <laughs> on various <laughs> occasions and also, you know, applause from both sides, depending on which particular aspect of Catholic social teaching I'm addressing at the time. Yeah. Do you see, do you see an awakening among Catholic conservatives on this issue, this inconsistency? Um, it's hard to say. I think, I mean, I think Michael Knowles was a good example of that. And that's, you know, really the impetus for the article itself was seeing an opportunity to evangelize non-Catholic conservatives. Mm -hmm. That was really the, the main idea was, oh, how can we use his insights here to help bring political conservatives who aren't Catholic into the Catholic Church by showing them the wisdom of the Catholic teaching and how it's more more morally consistent than they have been on similar issues. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, I'm, a little, I'm, I'm sure I'm older than you, um, it does seem to me there's more conversation about this than uh, I remember uh, in earlier times. And uh, it seems to me it's a welcome conversation to have uh, because, again, we are trying to be shaped by what Christ has revealed uh, and what the church has then uh, applied and taught. And we want our, uh, as St. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, we don't want to be pushed into the mold of the world, uh, whether it's uh, a leftist world or a rightist world. Uh, we want our, our minds and hearts shaped by Christ's teaching in the heart of the church. And in this area of the social teaching of the church, uh, I think it, we, I think part of the problem is that a lot of social teaching relies upon prudential judgments, whereas something like abortion, you have a great deal of moral clarity on. But I, I do believe that uh, my own opinion is that this is a great time uh, to be kind of broadening uh, conservatives' attitudes on Catholic social teaching. Uh, Again, I, I, it, Catholic social teaching isn't a blueprint, uh, but it it does force a rethinking of what are the limits of uh, you know uh, free markets. Uh, how do free markets affect the development of the family? Um, in in this case, uh, the commodification of uh, you know surrogacy. Uh, so I. I think this is a great time, and I think your piece did a wonderful job uh, opening the conversation. Um, and you point out that sometimes in combating those much further from us, ideologically, we often forget that there are potential converts closer to home, so to speak. And uh, on this issue of moral consistency, you see it as a, an effective way of evangelizing conservatives who are just not aware of certain fundamental moral principles. 
Um, so I, I hope to I hope to hear more from you on this topic, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing more people echo uh, your insights uh, in this piece. So thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And we'll talk again, Lord willing. Thank you, Dr. Yeah. DeClue. Dr. Richard DeClue is Professor of Theology at the Word on Fire Institute, where he specializes in systematic theology with an interest in the thought of Joseph Ratzinger. He has a book coming out in the spring, which uh, I'll tell you, it's much awaited on my part. It's called The Mind of Pope Benedict XVI. And um, again, I'm looking forward to it. I think we were gifted, uh, Providence gifted us with a the most, it, it, arguably the most gifted uh, theologian, and in particular gifted biblical theologian, to ever sit on the chair of Peter. And we also have a, 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 an abundance of his writings over the years, which they're in print, they can be purchased now, but uh, I don't think they've been, I don't think much has been done to apply them. Now, these are theological writings of Joseph Ratzinger. They're not necessarily works of the magisterium, but they are the works that made the theological foundation and backdrop for Pope Benedict XVI. So, looking forward again to this work coming out in the spring by Dr. Richard DeClue, The Mind of Pope Benedict XVI. I'm Al Creston. Welcome to an Advanced Dentistry Center family. This is Dr. Metti and our team strives to treat you like family in a loving and compassionate way as we focus on serving you in a Christ-like manner. We do this by emphasizing prevention and general well-being for a lifetime. Our private practice is small, personal, state-of-the-art, and innovative with the goal to educate and motivate our patients in improving their oral health. It is through a partnership with you that you will achieve the goals for your smile. Advanced Dentistry is serious about the level of care we provide with attention to details and an exceptional level of care, skill, and judgment. We are thrilled for the opportunity to serve you. Dr. Matthew and the team invite you to visit them at AdvancedDentistryCenter.com or call them at 248-594-9592. That's 248-594-9592 advancedentistrycenter.com Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? Even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399 that's 844-398-9399. Ave Maria Radio invites you to feast on the joy of fasting this Lenten season and all year long. Fast from judging. Feast on loving. Fast from noise. Feast on silence. Fast from differences. Feast on unity. 
fasting is a part of true Christian life. It liberates us from this world as we grow closer to Christ. Light of the East, weekends on Ave Maria Radio. I am Father Thomas Loya. This week on Ave Maria, behold, the church is covered with a heavenly garment by the icons, thus preserving the true faith. May those who do not believe this be covered with shame. Now on Ave Maria Radio's newest FM stations, 105.5 FM in Southfield and 107.9 FM in Ann Arbor. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. There's more to it than reciting the act of spiritual communion. We should begin by having sincere repentance for our sins and affirming our belief that Christ's death redeemed us. Next, we call to mind the spiritual gifts found in Christ's sacrifice and thank God earnestly for them. Now we are disposed to pray the traditional prayer of spiritual communion. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Hi, this is Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Did you know that the Living Will was created by the Euthanasia Society? The USCCB says a better option is a healthcare durable power of attorney, where you choose a healthcare agent who understands your Catholic values. My Life Angels creates this legal document, available anywhere on mobile phones, safeguarding your medical decisions. My Life Angels will donate a percentage of your membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We live in an age of outrage and moral indignation. We're outraged over agribusinesses' treatment of chickens and cattle. We're outraged over oil companies polluting the air. We're outraged over theological progressives who seem bent on undermining the Catholic faith and political progressives who seem bent on undermining the nation. We are outraged over the redefinition of marriage. We're outraged over public schools being used to advance social agendas opposed to the Catholic faith. We're outraged over the transitioning business, which has found the new way of making money by giving adolescent girls double mastectomies. And when we're not filled with outrage and moral indignation, we're often filled with fear, because frankly, we don't know enough to be morally indignant. We fear what might happen with artificial intelligence. We fear what might happen with our next election and two seriously flawed major candidates. We fear what China, Brazil, India, and Russia are doing to dethrone the dollar. And the truth is, many of us don't know all that much about agribusiness or oil companies or the financial promise of the new trans industry or the importance of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. And this is one reason why I haven't spent time showing outrage over the civilian deaths in Gaza. First of all, I have no idea how trustworthy are the figures supplied 
by the Hamas health ministry. I wouldn't trust figures provided by North Korea's health ministry. I wouldn't trust Putin's figures for those killed in the battle for Ukraine. I wouldn't trust ISIS's figures. So why would I trust the Hamas health ministry? I had no idea what percentage of those killed were actually Hamas fighters. And I also had no idea what the tolerable ratio was between dead Hamas fighters and dead civilians. I mean, in modern urban warfare, is it unjust to kill 10 civilians for every Hamas fighter? Or is it unjust to kill 5 civilians for every Hamas fighter? I mean, we do have, we do have civilian casualty data from you know, previous wars, but this, wars are often different. Uh, certainly what's going on in Gaza is very different from what went on in the Second World War. So it's difficult to just measure from one war to the next. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm watching all this and I'm listening and I see people getting really upset. Most, most media agencies seem to be looking at uh, Israel as a perpetrator of terror themselves now. I mean, apparently, Brazil's President Lula thinks he knows uh, what the proper proportion should be between uh, dead terrorists and dead civilians because he compared Israel's actions to the Holocaust. Apparently, Human Rights Watch knows because they call Israel's actions relentless and unlawful. Well, maybe. But how many civilian deaths are acceptable when you're fighting in a city when your opponent is well known for using civilians as human shields, when Israel is sending warnings to those civilians to move before combat begins, if, if the civilian stays, Israel less responsible for their death? Well, we all agree that every civilian death is a terrible tragedy. We all agree that war is a judgment that human efforts at peace have failed. And we all agree that we should never get comfortable with war. We want our conscience to be properly pricked. But how do I decide if Israel's combat in Gaza is disproportionately brutal? Well, I was glad to read a piece by journalist Isaac Shore with The Telegraph. He uh, included the evaluation of Lord Andrew Roberts, who is visiting research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and also a specialist in aspects of the Second World War. In other words, with uh, Lord Andrew Roberts, we actually get the voice of a celebrated military historian. So, what does he think about Israel's proportion of dead civilians to dead Hamas fighters? Well, he says we have a problem from the start. That we have to use the figures provided by the Hamas Health Ministry, simply because we don't have any more reliable figures. And the figure right now is, as I checked this morning, is 29,000 civilians dead. And that figure does include, however, active Hamas fighters, which total 9,000. So we're down to actually 20,000 civilian deaths. And that, if you do the little math on this, that means that Israeli defense forces are killing a little over two civilians for every active Hamas fighter. Now, Lord Andrew Roberts' numbers are slightly different than mine, but close enough to make the same point. Quote, war is hell. 
Every individual civilian death is a tragedy. But I speak as a military historian. Less than two to one is an astonishingly low ratio for modern urban warfare, where the terrorists routinely use civilians as human shields. It's a testament to the professionalism, ethics, and values of the Israeli Defense Forces. According to Shur, even the United Nations claims that a normal ratio in urban combat would be 9 to 1, not 2 to 1. I mean, so every time you hear someone morally indignant about the civilian deaths in Gaza, just ask them how many civilian deaths would be tolerable when you're trying to eliminate a terrorist group in city warfare where they're using human shields and where the terrorists prefer the death of Palestinians to the continuing of the state of Israel. They'll probably tell you they have no idea. And you would have stepped on the outrage brakes uh, and stopped their slide into further outrage. Uh, Another thing that happens here is that casualty counts from Gaza are often presented beside the number of people killed during the October 7th terror attack, as if you're comparing like to like. Um, I mean, it's, it's perfectly understandable that the press wants to convey uh, the significance of innocent lives snuffed out on both the Israeli and the Palestinian sides equally. But what so many fail to comprehend is that it can at once be true that every innocent life lost is equally tragic and that not every life lost on one side of a conflict can be counted as a moral indictment of the other. No conflict that began with barbarians charging over a border to murder, rape, torture, and burn alive men, women, and children for the crime of being born Jews could ever have expected to end without significantly more bloodshed. It's regrettable, but it's unavoidable. Again, you can look over civilian casualty figures you know, for all the wars they are listed but again, how do we distinguish, you know, the, the, the London bombing from the Dresden bombing, from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the Japanese uh, firebombing? Uh, excuse me, the, the the Allies firebombing of Japanese Tokyo. Uh, you're stuck. You know, most of us are not competent to really make all these judgments. So we're, we're reduced to simply asking, can we at least get a, a, an accurate number on civilian deaths versus combatant deaths? If we can at least get that number down, we can begin to think about a tolerable ratio. Right now, I'm going to stick with you know a man who knows more about it than I do. And he says that as it stands right now, with numbers supplied by the Hamas Health Ministry, um, Israeli Defense Forces are doing a remarkable job at roughly two civilian deaths to one Hamas fighter dead. God may know differently, but I'd like to see human beings who can tell me differently. 
and uh, I don't see any reliable ones. I want to switch gears and talk about upcoming interview with Dr. Marianne Glendon in the next hour, uh, because she has been something of a model uh, layperson. Uh, she uh, has served the church in so many capacities. She's uh, a learned hand professor of law at uh, Harvard University. She's a former U.S. ambassador to the Holy See. Back in 1995, she led the Vatican delegation to Beijing for the UN's World Conference on Women, and thus became the first woman ever to lead a Vatican delegation. Um, she's published quite a bit in her own chosen field of the law, and she's also written uh, in the area of Catholic life. Uh, a recent book that we'll be discussing in the second hour is called In the Courts of Three Popes, an American lawyer and diplomat in the last absolute monarchy of the West. So she's coming up. But I thought before we get to uh, Marianne, I want to read a little bit from the epilogue of her book. It's called The Hour of the Laity. And <clears throat> she quotes uh, Venerable Bishop Fulton Sheen, Who is going to save the church? Not our bishops, not our priests and religious. It's up to you, the lay people. You have the minds, the eyes, the ears to save the church. Uh, she also quotes St. John Henry Newman, who was responding to a bishop who asked what he thought of the laity. And uh, St. John Henry Newman said, Well, we'd look pretty foolish without them. The main objective of the Second Vatican Council, Marianne writes, was to better prepare the church for the evangelization of the modern world and the lady were expected to be in the forefront of that effort. As one of its youngest members, the future Pope John Paul II declared, with the council, the hour of the laity truly struck. But she then points out, today, it often seems that the clock stopped somewhere along the way, at least in Western countries. In Europe and North America, increasing numbers of men and women identify themselves as non-religious, or unaffiliated with organized religion. In 2021, when one of the few still-living council fathers was asked to name the greatest challenge facing the church today, his reply sounded as though not much had changed since the council ended in 1965. Nigerian Cardinal Francis Arinzi said, quote, Convince each member of the church to do his or her own specific part in the general mission of the church, that is, the lay faithful, for 99% of the church and convince the clergy of the importance of the lay apostolate. That's how we change. Beacon Skin and Surgeries is a comprehensive dermatology center on the border of Troy and Rochester Hills, south of M59 and in Livonia. Beacon Skin and Surgeries perform full skin exams and focus on the diagnosis and treatment of all types of skin cancer and precancerous lesions. All are board certified dermatologists and fellowship trained surgeons. Call 248-852-1900. Beacon Skin and Surgeries, a beacon for patient care. 248-852-1900. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, 
They donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Modern philosophers Kierkegaard, Shelley, Sartre proposed the idea that existence precedes essence, by which they meant, in simpler terms, that in the process of time we make or create who and what we are. We understand, of course, that there are those who believe that their doing has been more successful than that of others, and have consequently argued that their being is on a higher state than that of others. This is the kind of thinking that leads to genocide, gas chambers, and abortion clinics. However, folks like Barb and Patrick and Paul and Alicia believe that from the beginning human essence is divinely ordered and infinitely valuable, and where else can we state this more clearly than our defense of preborn children who cannot prove themselves or justify themselves? They can only be, which is why they are so precious to one named I am. Go to GuadalupeWorkers.org. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, weekdays on Ave Maria Radio. A conversation I had several years ago with uh, one of our listeners who wrote to me and said she was being challenged by a friend or a cousin or someone regarding the church and various teachings, especially on marriage and abortion and whatnot. And she said, I need the answers and I need them quickly because I want to quiet this person and shut them down. And I wrote her back and I said, I'm not going to give you the answers. I will give you some resources, such as the link to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I said, but you need to look these up and you need to read them over. And you need to learn them because this is not going to be the last time that you're going to be challenged your questions about your faith. And what good is it if you're just barking answers to someone and you're not able to explain them charitably? This is a way we all should learn by doing the work ourselves. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, weekday mornings from 8 to 10 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio and AveMariaRadio.net. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News, and a Senior Fellow at St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Um, good to have you, Matthew. It's a little early this week. <laughs> yes, it is. But the news doesn't stop, does no. it? No. And this is a very strange story. The Archdiocese of New York made headlines last Friday after a funeral was held at St. Patrick's Cathedral for transgender activist Cecilia Gentili, 
who identified as a transgender woman and an activist. The funeral, first reported by the New York Times, packed the cathedral with more than a thousand mourners. Many of them LGBT activists are presenting themselves as transgender. So uh, this got received a lot of criticism, and I'm not sure where you want to begin. <laughs> well, there are, or were certainly at the very start, a lot of questions as to how this happened. Yeah. Um, I've had a chance to watch the entire funeral service that was okay. posted uh, on online on YouTube. Mm. Um, I don't necessarily recommend that people watch it, right. uh, because it, uh, as you're watching, well, the best way to describe this is what the the pastor of uh, the the cathedral uh, the way he described it uh at father enrique salvo he he used uh, two words and that one is sacrilegious and deceptive well and it's deceptive in the sense that we know now that uh, there were deliberate misstatements outright lies uh apparently to the cathedral staff uh, as to who this person was and what was being asked for mm-hmm. and it was sacrilegious as anyone who has seen photos or clips uh, or the, the stream can tell you that this was uh, a the word raucous would be the most possibly charitable interpretation or, or word to use I think um, it was a sacrilegious in the sense that the behavior of many during this uh, service, it started off as a funeral mass, and that's worth noting, uh, deteriorated almost instantly. And throughout this service, uh, there let's just say it was very performative, uh, yeah. that those who were in uh, drag, uh, which I think is the technical term for a lot of this, uh, their behavior was simply unbelievable and, and for many, many, absolutely horrifying uh, in this, what is this prominent church. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a, a much revered church. It's got an extraordinary history. Was it a funeral mass? No, and that was one of the things that uh, circulated almost immediately online. Uh, now, the indications uh, were that it started off as one. And it uh, is also notable that Father James Martin, of course, who's no stranger to your audience, the Jesuit priest, actually uh, told the New York Times before all of this happened, so he was obviously aware that uh, this funeral was coming, he said that to celebrate the funeral mass, and that's how he described it to the New York Times, of a transgender woman, as he puts it at St. Patrick's, is a powerful reminder during Lent that LGBTQ people are as much a part of the church as anyone else. Uh, I wonder if this would have if it would have happened a generation ago. Now he had more to say. We can come back to that in a minute. So every indication was that this is going to be a funeral mass. You can hear in the stream itself at a certain point, right after the introduction uh, and the opening prayers. Uh, you can see the way the the crowd responded uh, to the celebrant uh, for this, and uh, let's just say that the the, the behavior of those who were in attendance uh and you could see it on the face of father edward doherty who was trying to reach out to them sure uh that suddenly you hear on the stream someone walks up i'm presuming it's uh the liturgist or or whoever actually is in command of masses there says to him on the stream okay so here's what we're going to do we're going to go to we're not going to do the the mass we're just going to go to uh the the funeral service and then we'll wrap up 
So they made the conscious decision right immediately that this is not an occasion suitable for the celebration of a mass, and instead they went to uh, a regular funeral service, of course, which is readings, and then you have the eulogy. Yeah. Now, that, I suspect, is also going to be the source of uh, controversy. A, because of the questions are being asked, well, what sort of due diligence took place at all in, in terms of the preparations for this? But then you're also going to have those within that community, within the LGBTQ community, within the progressive community, are, will likely say now, well, that they were mistreated, that the, the legacy and the memory of Cecilia Gentili have been besmirched because you wouldn't give us what we wanted, which was a funeral mass. Uh, she was a self-professed atheist, I thought. Yes, yes. So she was, you have to say, why, why a funeral mass? Because she's using the church. She's... She's leveraging uh, the church uh, to make some sort of statement. Well, it's hard. To, I, I, I can't speak for what Gentili wanted in death. Um, the, the, the transgender activist died, I believe, in Brooklyn. So okay. it raises some jurisdictional questions. Uh, surely there, there could have been a church in the Brooklyn Diocese that, that might have been suitable. But we also know that based on those around the deceased wanted this mass, this funeral at St. Patrick's, and went to some lengths to get it. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that uh, by their own testimony, uh, they were not forthcoming, they were not honest uh, with the cathedral. I think this is what drew the particular ire of uh, Father Salvo and others in the Archdiocese and at St. Patrick's, that uh, all of this was predicated apparently on a series of lies, yeah. that uh, they did not represent uh, the truth of who this person was. Now, again, we have to ask the question, what sort of protocol uh, is in place? Not that you have to double-check everyone who's being buried or, or given a funeral, but at the very least, there have to be some forms, and surely uh, there were enough people who were aware uh, of the announcement being made that this funeral was going to be held at St. Patrick's there's just a timeline, I think, that is not curious, but I think, uh, let's just say it is going to be the inspiration, or already is the inspiration, for parishes, cathedrals, yeah. uh, and dioceses all across the country to look at what are our protocols going forward, because I can guarantee this is not the last time they will attempt this. Yeah. I mean, the, the church is pretty, pretty darn generous uh, yes. in, in this capacity. They, they see the... You know, burying the dead is a corporal work of mercy. Um, you know, they're, they don't, I have to say, they don't ask a lot of questions. Um, and right. now, we're, now, as we've seen, we've, we have people who deliberately are using um, the sacred liturgy as a form of political theater. Uh, it's, it's, it just creates mistrust where there should not be. Right. Um, uh, and and the behavior during uh, the funeral service, what became a funeral service, was so offensive to so many people uh, that I think that it has even exacerbated what has been an act of deception uh, even further. Yeah. I mean, we know that uh, the, the people around uh, the, the, the family and friends and activists around Gentili wanted St. Patrick's. They targeted St. Patrick's to have the funeral there because they wanted the spectacle of it. 
they felt that this is an iconic place, they said, for an iconic person. Okay, uh, so it happened. But the question then becomes, and this is something that uh, uh, even Father James Martin noted uh, in his subsequent uh, uh, tweets or, or posts on X, that he walked back so much of what he said uh, that... As he said, obviously, I believe that LGBTQ people should be as included as any other parishioner in their church, just as obviously I believe that churches are sacred spaces and certain actions are out of bounds. Yeah. yeah I mean, she, so, go ahead. She's celebrated as a whore, as the mother of whores. Uh, this is not normally... Right. This is from the altar. Yeah. I mean, this is, this yeah. is from the sanctuary of St. Patrick's. Yeah. Um, they were dancing around the deceased casket. Uh, I, I assume that was... Was that... Did they actually use words Ave Cecilia rather than Ave Maria? Yes, they did. At the point where uh, in the, the funeral service uh, the Ave was sung, uh, at least one activist that's on the stream uh, began dancing up the, the main aisle of St. Patrick's. If you've ever been there, you know that this is a, a rather grand uh, avenue, yeah, so to speak, yeah. uh, screaming, uh, Ave Cecilia, Ave Cecilia, instead of Ave Maria, uh, there was a, a kind of mockery of the Our Father right at the start. Mm. Uh, the, the list goes on and on. And then we can get into um, the attire of so many who attended. Uh, the sequins was the least of the, the flamboyant part. I mean, there were fishnet stockings. There was, I mean, everything that you can imagine that would be in this type of a rally was on display in St. Patrick's. Yeah. And it, and it isn't simply an episode of pearl clutching on the part of people. No. This is what is the rightful demand of the church to have respect paid to sacred precincts yeah. like this, which yeah. is why the archdiocese, I think, was very wise and, and faced the necessity of having an, a, a massive reparation for yes, what happened. Yes, now tell there. me about that. That's an unusual uh, act. It is. Uh, now, we can go back in, in recent years, uh, they've been held because we have, uh, uh, we've had masses of reparation for uh, the sex abuse crisis. Uh, we've had uh, services of reparation. So it's basically an effort to expiate, to yeah. offer atonement for our sins and the sins of the others. But it's also it's the best example, our most recent one that came to mind was just last November uh, when the Diocese of Brooklyn had to hold a massive reparation because in one of its parishes, a video, uh, a music video or, or some such, was filmed uh, that was hyper-violent, hyper-sexual, and they used one of the parish churches to film this thing. Mm. And it was scandalous at the time. The, the parishioners were outraged, and so the diocese held a massive reparation. And the language that they used, I thought, was really striking. It, it talks about that we have to restore the sanctity of this church. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that was absolutely necessary with St. Patrick's. The, the, the problem now, though, is that this is uh, likely a story that won't be going away for a while. Uh, I suspect there, there are going to be some additional chapters here uh, as people speak out, but uh, as perhaps more details are learned. We've got uh, very little time left, yeah. but I did want to go to one headline here. Um, the, the Synodal Way Project in Germany. <laughs> yes. Um, the German bishops have decided not to vote on this uh, forbidden Synodal Council. 
That's right. Tell, tell me the significance of this. Well, the, the, the biggest takeaway from this, the most significant aspect is that it is clear that they, the bishops, German Bishops Conference has confirmed that the, the, the bishops will not be voting on this at the request of the Holy See, at the Vatican's request. So they were planning to have a vote on endorsing essentially a committee that was preparing what's called a synodal council. Uh, Which would the, govern the church in Germany. Exactly. What is continually interesting in this is that uh, we've had the, the Germans resisting, we've had them pushing back, we've had them ignoring uh, Pope Francis and the heads of different dicasteries for, well, since 2019, when you and I have been talking about this. On these other points, uh, sexual morality, for example, the ordination of women, uh, clerical celibacy, here, when it was actually setting a, a stage for the implementation of the governance of the German church, finally, I think the Holy See recognized the real dangers that are here for authority in the church, for a proper understanding of ecclesiology, but also the abrogation of the rightful authority of individual bishops over their own diocese, because one of the hanging questions for this was how much authority was going to have, whether they could bully and cajole bishops to go along with this work of a synodal council that was ostensibly a gathering of bishops, but at the heart of it, sort of the dark heart of this, was going to be the, the Committee of German Catholics. Uh, the Central Committee of German Catholics, the ZDK, that of course is one of the most radical organizations in the church. Right. Um, did, did the refusal to take a vote on this, is this a permanent backing away, or is this some, they're just waiting for another day? I suspect that uh, they're waiting for at least uh, the opportunity to have meetings in Rome. There was supposedly one in January. There may be more coming up, so okay. I don't think that this is going to be a closed chapter quite yet. All right. Matthew, thanks for joining me today on these two... Very uh, riveting stories. I appreciate it. They're great to be with you, as always. God bless. Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We'll have follow-up information on both these stories in the Crested Guest Archives later today. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. The question of gender identity is divisive, controversial, and often painful. How should parents respond to sons and daughters desiring to change their gender? Will the church remain free to teach that we are created male and female? What do the sciences say? We'll find out on March 2nd when Father Gabriel Richard High and Ave Maria Radio host our annual Familiaris Consortio Conference, Responding to Gender Dysphoria in Truth and Charity. Attorney John Bursch takes on gender ideology, Professor of Endocrinology, Dr. Paul Cruz, covers the sciences. Father Sean Kilcauley speaks as a pastor. And you will bring plenty of questions for our panel. Be there Saturday morning, March 2nd, from 8.15 until noon at Father Gable Richard High in Ann Arbor. The event is free, includes a light breakfast, so register at AveMariaRadio.net or FGRHS.org. Are we always obliged to obey our conscience? It depends on what kind of conscience we have. The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us we are always obliged to follow a certain conscience, in other words, a good conscience. If we deliberately act against such a conscience, we condemn ourselves. On the other hand, our moral conscience may reside in ignorance, and thus we are subject to erroneous judgments about acts in the future or those performed in the past. 
If one is personally responsible for one's ignorance, one is still culpable of the sin one commits. What are the causes of erroneous judgment? The Catechism lists several. Ignorance of Christ and his gospel, bad example of others, enslavement to one's passions, rejection of the church's authority and her teaching, lack of conversion and charity. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. You're listening to Ave Maria Radio. Ave Maria Radio. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Well, uh, almost on cue, the ACLU has just issued a press release where they are calling for political religious religious leaders, political leaders, and community members to go to a press conference on Wednesday, tomorrow, uh, to request an explanation from St. Patrick's Cathedral for cutting short the funeral mass service of Cecilia Gentili. Um, you know, this is interesting because the church made the decision to make it a funeral service rather than a funeral mass after they had gotten started because they recognized that this was turning into a bit of political theater without any expression of Catholic faith they are now being forced by the ACLU to make public uh, demonstration of their 